Hello, and thank you for joining us for the Hatchbend Apostolic Church web broadcast. In our society today, some, and yes, sadly, maybe even most, question the value of preaching in their lives. But we still believe what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In essence, Paul preached that God has chosen the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. And so that's why we still place such a high value on the preached word of God in agreement to the scripture. And so now I'd like to thank you again for joining us for a message from the pulpit of Hatchbend Apostolic Church. We magnify your name, Lord. We magnify your name. When you begin to talk about who he is, he shows up and shows you who he is. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he's in this house tonight. Aren't you thankful for that? Praise God. Let's, let's travel together this afternoon, this evening, to John chapter 12. We'll read one verse of Scripture, John chapter 12 and verse 24. I felt drawn to this uh, a few weeks ago. and I just... Uh, just began to, to study and, and ponder, and, and I feel like the Lord gave me some direction. And, and um, it's going to seem quite familiar to probably the last few times I've spoke, um, but I just can't get away from, from what I feel. Maybe it's the times and maybe it's the, the season, I don't know. John chapter 12, verse 24, this is Jesus. Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. If it, if it dies, if it falls into the ground and, and it dies, if it doesn't do this, it abides alone. But if it will, Jesus said it will bring forth much fruit and so tonight, for just a few moments, I'm not real good with titles, and so hopefully this will make sense. But I want to talk to us about a requisite for harvest. A requisite for harvest. Let's pray one more time. Let's just lift our hands, our voices to heaven, and ask the Lord to help. Lord, we, we can't do this on our own. We're, we're fooling ourselves, God, if we think that we can accomplish anything in this house by our own flesh. Your word says, God, that you're that you would be king, that you would reign, and that no flesh should glory in your presence. And so, Lord, we're just asking you to hide us behind you, to let your spirit rule and reign, and let your word take preeminence in this house. God, as we direct our steps toward it, I'm asking you to direct our paths from it, God, to help us to live out what you have called us to do in Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. amen. You can be seated. Thank you for standing. Requisite for harvest. You know, Self-preservation is probably uh, probably pretty evident these days. It's, it's probably not anything new. It's, it's the human condition to preserve oneself, to not only live, but to live well. We like comfort. <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to stand here. I'm going to talk to me tonight. That, that's okay. If I use the word we, just know I meant me. But we like comfort. We like it easy. We, 
as human beings, it's, it's just a natural bent. We, we desire the path of least resistance. We live in an entitlement society. That is becoming more and more evident by the day. People are constantly fighting for greatness, and, and they're seeking to do this to, to achieve this greatness by the world's metric or, or their standard of greatness, and they, and they seek to do so by the easiest means possible. It's evident by the billions of dollars of revenue that's brought into this state alone. This state alone of lotteries and sweepstakes, ads, fill the airways of online gambling and casinos and get-rich-quick plans, Ponzi schemes and pyramid schemes, multi-level marketing, whatever you want to call it, chain mail and email, scammer calls. Does your phone ring off the hook? It's more prevalent today than it ever has been. And all of it is to enrich oneself while taking advantage of others. It's the goal of becoming, I guess, financially secure, but to do it by the easiest means possible. It doesn't begin and end with finances necessarily. This kind of thinking can be applied to multi-levels and multi-factors of living on a daily basis. Ads concerning weight loss never mention diet and exercise. I find that funny. It's been mentioned in the last few services with the motto that Burger King adopted many, many years ago, have it your way, now has it even added bonus that you rule. Have it your way because you rule. That's what man wants to do. But the fact of the matter is we don't, even if we think we do, because we can't. We just simply can't. God must rule in every aspect of our lives. And for that to occur, ladies and gentlemen, it's simply not easy. And I don't think that it was ever meant to be. The Christian life is a complete composite opposite and a total departure from what our world says is worthwhile. That is the bottom line. It's, it's paradoxical to the world system. The world says to live First, you must preserve everything you have to hoard your wealth or your possessions and to heap to yourself everything that you can. And to get that wealth, you have to do it by any means possible, whether it's by a, an admirable circumstance or, or whether it's nefarious methods, whichever comes first. It's, it's just what you must do. To be great, you first must push all others down and exalt oneself above everything and everyone else around you. But the Christ-centered life, the, the, to be Christ-like, which is paramount, is paradoxical. It's an, it's an opposite. Instead of conquering like Caesar, Alexander, or Napoleon, Jesus provided us today with a paradoxical way to live a better life. He said, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of corn, unless a kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. And so that type of talking, that type of doctrinal teaching, flies 
in the face of human reasoning because God's way says to live, you first must die. And to receive, you first must give. You live by dying and you receive by giving and by becoming the least, that is when one becomes the greatest. And none of that, none of that this evening sounds easy or comfortable. God said in Isaiah 55 and 8 through the prophet, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And so I'm not going to go very deep. We're not going to set the plow very deep tonight. So if you're waiting for something deep, you're probably going to be waiting for a very long time. I've come to this desk with a very simple notation, a very simple direction from the Lord. And that is just to remind us once again that we must follow him. We must follow him because following him is absolutely paramount. Jesus simply stated to his disciples, follow me. And they followed. Yet they would come to understand that even though they left their nets without question, that even though they forsook their livelihood and everything they were familiar with and followed him, that there was more to following him than simply accompanying him. Matthew 16 and 24 then Jesus said unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. It went beyond symbolism when Jesus referred to the cross. Jesus was not speaking in allegorical terms necessarily because he would in fact die a very gruesome death on the cross. Jesus was referring to a new way of life, and it was certainly one that the disciples were not accustomed to. By him making the statement, take up his cross, establishes the difference between relaxing in some state of comfortable Christianity and doing what is absolutely necessary, and that is bringing forth spiritual fruit. And I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but you already know where I'm going. It doesn't, it doesn't work in the opposite. Fruit does not take place unless there is first a death, unless there is a dying. In his book, The Cost of Discipleship, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who died at the hands of the Nazis, said, when all is said and done, the life of faith is nothing, if, and, if not an unending struggle in the spirit with every available weapon against the, the flesh. He was also quoted as making a very sobering statement. When he said somewhere around 1959, he said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Now, we don't like that kind of thinking. We don't like that. I can feel the tension in the room now because we just don't like that. Jesus declared that one must follow him, but in order to do so, one must take up his cross because it is a prerequisite. In following him. The inference insists that we must become a living sacrifice. It is what Paul admonished the Roman church in Romans 12 and 1. He said, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your 
reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. This phrase, present your bodies, is the same context that Paul used in, in Romans 6 and 13, where we see a very similar uh, exhortation when, when he uses the word in Romans 6 and 13. He uses the word yield, or at least it's translated yield. He said in Romans 6 and 13, neither yield yourselves, your members, as instruments unto righteousness, unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. And so not only are we, are we abstaining from one thing, but we are giving ourselves to another. Paul addressed this same thing when writing to the church at Philippi in Philippians 3 and 10. He said that I may know him, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. But this is how we get to the resurrection and the, and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. And so Paul understood that as long as I'm going to follow him, is if I'm going to get to the resurrection part of this, which we love, which we we adore the, the, the resurrection part of this, the stone has been rolled away, the, the, the body of Jesus is no longer alive or, or there. He's alive, he's alive and well. But what we don't want to focus on is the death part of it. You see, the journey to know him and the power of his resurrection is dependent upon us taking up our cross and following him daily as he walked toward Calvary. Because if we don't, if we don't associate with the sufferings of the cross, then we can never experience the high calling of God that has been placed upon every single one of us. But if we can somehow forsake all this world has to offer, it's then and only then that we can become rich in the things that really matter. It's by sacrificing ourselves and giving of ourselves that we truly begin to gain. Because Jesus said, by giving, you receive. It's God's law. It's his word. And when it's applied, it works. It's just as simple as that. It's his law, and because it is his law, if we will apply it, it's guaranteed. It will work. There's a pyramid scheme out there for everybody. There's no guarantee that that will work, but yet there are people by the droves who are calling and, 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 and soliciting and marketing over and over in abundance, hour after hour, toiling to something that they have no idea will ever come out. But we know that God's word is forever settled. It is tried. It's tested, and it's been proven. And if we can apply it, we know that it will work. Living in a state of disobedience from God's law and God's plan, it's counterintuitive because it's, it, it establishes a state of selfishness. Now, I know my audience here tonight. I'm looking at people who have been walking down this road a lot longer than I have. So please take this in the spirit that I say it. But selfishness is resident in a human being. It's in here now. It's, it's, it's in here now. And it's always warring against what God is trying to do. Right. Selfishness says to gain, you must take. Right. 
And that is exactly, can I get a witness, what the flesh does. It just takes and takes and takes. You can eat tonight and you can eat until you're full. But wake up in the morning and see what happens. You're going to be hungry again because it can never be fully satisfied. It just takes and takes and consumes and takes. However, self-centered living will never prosper because the self-centered person never gets what he or she desires. And here's why. It's because self always gets in the way. What we're trying to satisfy, what we're trying to give ourselves to, will always get in the way and cause us not to ever be satisfied in what we're searching for. Self can never be satisfied because it is counterintuitive to God's law. It simply doesn't work because flesh can never be satisfied. Remember this, 2 Corinthians 9 and 16. But this I say, he which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly, and he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Now apply this principle to Galatians 6 and 7 through 8. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For for whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. And so simply stated, you get exactly what you give. If you give into the flesh over and over and over, the Bible says you're just going to reap corruption. There's one translation that says you'll reap a whirlwind. But if we will give ourselves to the Spirit and we will adapt our minds to think like Him and act like Him and follow Him, we will get what we give. We can't find a better example than that and that of mercy. Because if we give mercy, we stand a much greater chance of getting that back. Luke 6 and 36. Be ye therefore merciful as your Father also is merciful. Judge not and ye shall not be judged. Condemn not and ye shall not be condemned. Forgive. Can you finish it? And ye shall be forgiven. Give. And it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down and shaken together and running over shall men give into your bosom. For with the same measure that you meet with all, it shall be measured to you again. Now he's talking about mercy, but I believe that this is a principle that we can apply to every aspect of our lives. It it is a sure principle. And so can I tell you something here this evening? We don't have to seek to gain. All we, all we got to do is just give. We don't have to seek, seek retribution or recognition. All we need to do is just give. We don't have to seek payback or revenge or try to get even. All we just need to give is mercy. And God said, if you'll just give it, I'll give it back to you. Press down, shaken together and running over. And so all we need to do is give. We don't have to heat to ourselves, our time, our money or our talent if we will but give God will give it back in abundance and so we can rest assured knowing that whatever we give whatever we give for the kingdom's sake whatever we give in the kingdom will never ever be lost no amount of time that you ever invest in the kingdom will ever be lost to you well, I feel like saying that again. That, that really does fly in the face of, the, of our society. 
But if we will give everything that we have to this, God will just keep giving back. He might not give you more time, but he might give you health. If you'll give to the kingdom, it doesn't matter what it is. He might not give you that exact measurement back, but he'll give it back to you in other ways. Yes, he will. Because the kingdom is eternal. Remember this, in the kingdom of God, the last become first, the giver becomes the recipient, and the least, well, they become the greatest. With one of the most effective ministries one could ever have, with one of the most, with the most predominant and dominant ministries of his day that he had before Jesus stepped on the scene, he was followed by not a few He was famous and he was followed. He had a strong constituency that was walking behind him. He was baptizing every day. He was making it happen. And he could have taken on an arrogant air, perhaps maybe even proud about what he had uh, always accomplished in, in what he was doing. Yet when Jesus stepped on the banks of that muddy Jordan, he looked up and he humbly and boldly proclaimed, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sins of the world, the, 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 the Baptist, the John, the man. He was the man of the hour. He could, have just, he could have just taken that following to wherever he wanted to take it. But when Jesus stepped on the scene, he said he must increase and I must decrease. It's difficult, but it is imperative that we adopt the mindset of John the Baptist. And before you think that I could never be that, I could never I could never do that, I could never try to take the preeminence over God, this flesh will make you do some some crazy stuff. It will put your your mind in a in a bad place. So don't ever say you can't or you won't or I would never. You must always have the mindset every day he must increase but I must decrease. That is the only way that one can become the greatest. And that is the only way that one can make it in the kingdom. Jesus exampled this. Not only John the Baptist, but Jesus himself. The King of Kings. The Lord of Lords. He exampled this as the disciples finished eating. He wrapped himself in a towel, the Bible says, and poured water into a basin. Astonished. They had to have been. As he began to kneel at their feet and wash their feet, if anyone deserved their feet to be washed, it was the Master. It was Him, the Creator of the universe, the the, the Spirit of God that spoke everything into existence, high and lifted up. One prophet said, I looked and He was high and lifted up and I could do nothing but bury my face in the ground and say, woe is me. But that same God robed Himself in humble flesh and knelt at the feet of those men and began to wash their feet he demonstrated his greatness by displaying his humility through his humanity and here's why in the weeks and even in the days and maybe even moments leading up to this moment the clamoring the the the, the, the bickering the, the 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 backroom talks that were going on even in the midst of those disciples in his inner circle they were jockeying for the best positions and the best seats 
in heaven, even two of them, had their mother come to him and say, can one sit on your right hand and other on the left? Can they judge and rule with you? And he said, unless you're going to do that, you're going to have to drink the same drink that I drink. You're going to have to take a sip from the same cup that I'm, I'm going to drink from. And he was prophetically speaking of what they would endure. And so even in those moments where one man was to betray him, my daughter was just listening to that passage of Scripture the other day, and I thought to myself, he's sitting across the table from the known man who in just a few hours is going to sell him for just a few pieces of silver. And he calls him friend. He washed his feet. Jesus demonstrated what he said in Luke 22 and 26. The greatest among you should be like the youngest. And the one who rules like the one who serves. Disciples' failure to understand at that time was simply a case of misaligned priorities. And that's what he was doing. He was ever so gently as God does. Realigning their priorities. Resetting their mindset, if you will. Peter first refused to allow Jesus to kneel before him in such a lowly state. But as Jesus continued to wash their feet, he taught them to rearrange their thinking and to realign their priorities. He demonstrated the importance of the right value system. He demonstrated that success cannot be measured by your position or your title. Let me say that again. Your success in this kingdom cannot be measured by your position or your title. It can only be measured by your posture. It was a paradigm shift. It was a new way of measurement that the way up is actually down. Jesus was saying, I didn't call you necessarily to live. I called you to die. Just like me, I called you to die. And hearing this is the requisite response. John 12 and 23, and Jesus answered them saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, truthfully, truthfully, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He that love, loveth his life shall lose it. And he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto eternal life. If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there also shall my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. Jesus had been moving toward his final hour. The coming of the Greeks referenced in verses 20 and 21 of that chapter confirmed that the hour had come that the Son of Man would be glorified. To the disciples... The coming kingdom, at least in their own minds, was a complete overthrow of the current kingdom rule and an establishment of the kingdom of God on the earth and the ultimate restoration of the Jews by force. Now they weren't 100% wrong. They were just 
wrong in the wrong time. Because Jesus is returning, and he will set up his kingdom on earth, and he will do it by force, but not then. The thought process was about a millennium or so too early. No, in that moment, Jesus' task was simply to die. Now, for most, especially by the means in which he would suffer and die, was humiliation. But for Jesus, death was his means of entry into glory. Stay with me now. His willingness to die for other sins, of which he was in no wise guilty of, in obedience to the Father, brought him renown. And the analogy of a kernel of wheat dying in the ground and producing many seeds teaches us that death is absolutely necessary for harvest. There is no way around it. The wheat analogy illustrates a general paradoxical principle that death is the only way to life for him. And then he bids us follow. And so you ask the question, how? How do we follow? Well, I'm glad you asked. It's through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. We know this. Initially accomplished through repentance, baptism in Jesus' name for the remission of sin and the infilling of the Holy Ghost. But that is the entrance into. Now we must establish our own altar. It's then that we establish our own altar by repenting of our sins and then it is carried out in an ongoing fashion as we and as the Apostle Paul said present our bodies a living sacrifice. Not that we are that we are literally climbing on an altar and sacrificing ourselves unto death. That, but, but that we are sacrificing our flesh. Can I say it like this? We're, just, we're, we're sacrificing our own desires. Let me, let me dig a little bit deeper. It's, it's sacrificing our own time. It's, it's sacrificing our own talents. It's sacrificing our own increase. Or at least what we think is our own time. Or what we think is our own talents. Or what we may, what, what we may presume is our own increase. Because in reality, in all actuality, it doesn't belong to us in the first place. It belongs to Him. And it belongs in the kingdom. And so your increase that God has given you, it belongs in the kingdom. Your time that God has given you, it belongs in the kingdom. It doesn't belong out there. Your, your increase doesn't belong out there. Your talents, they belong in the kingdom. They don't belong out there because they don't work out there. They only work in the kingdom. And so for that to occur, I must die to myself and die out even to my own time, my own talents, my own increase, and even my own giftedness because I can't allow any of those things whether they be good or whether they be abilities that God has given me to somehow overtake or to be exalted above what the Lord is calling me to and that is to die out to everything but Him anything this morning I talked to a lady this morning anything can become an idol in your life 
It doesn't even have to be something nefarious or something overtly sinful, but anything can become an idol. Anything can get in the way of what God is calling you to or what God is calling you to do. God, God is looking for people who are sold out, who are, who are willing to give themselves no matter what, no matter the cost, no matter how long, no matter how wide, no matter how deep. I'm just going to give, give, and give. I'm going to die out to my own goals. I'm going to die out to my own interests. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to die out to my own loves and even my own life. If it's even my own life or po- po- possibly I'm living vicariously through someone else. I don't want there to be an idol in the way of what God is calling me to. He said the person who loves his life, if he loves it, he's going to surely lose it. Because when it's over here, it's over. There is nothing coming after it. It is going to be done. It's going to be finite all over. But the person who undergoes a spiritual death to self will find the true purpose that God has placed on his or her individual life. He said you must hate. That's a strong word. Hate this life. It's quiet, I know. Hate his life. Means to be so committed to Christ that he has no self-centeredness and no concern for his or own self-preservation. Reputation. What people might think. What people might see. That is why we must adopt and adapt our own altar. And we must adapt and carry our own cross. All four Gospels describe the crucifixion. It's been mentioned already, Matthew 16 and 24. However, both Mark and Luke confirm Matthew's account when Jesus said, If any man, he didn't say Jew, he didn't say Gentile, he wasn't even talking about men in the, in the context of, of male and female, it's mankind. If any person, whoever will, will come after me, follow me, emulate me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. You see, much of Christianity today, and I think you would probably agree, does a pretty good job of addressing the first cross. You can see them, they mark our, our, our landscape. Crosses are everywhere. They're in churchyards. They're around people's necks. They're tattooed on people's bodies. They have no, no problem whatsoever identifying with the first cross. Because someone else did that. He did that. He, 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 he presumably took care of everything on that cross, and he did. But there's a second cross. There's, a, there's another aspect. There's a second cross that is often overlooked or even otherwise rejected. A second cross. And it's my cross. It's not his cross. He already got on his cross. I need to get on my cross. Jesus attempted to explain to his disciples before his death that for anything to live and for anything to be fruitful, it must die first. T.S. Eliot said the greatest proof of Christianity for others is not how far a man can logically analyze his reasons for believing, but how far in practice he will stake his life on his belief. And so his cross, as well as my own cross, while it is for my own well-being, while it is for myself and my own my own spiritual preservation, if you will, ultimately my cross was just as, 
is important is his cross because my cross is ultimately not only for me but it is for the sake of others because without the cross there can be no resurrection without the cross there would be no resurrection without the cross there would be no resurrection of the dead without death there can be no life unless something dies hear me now I'm not trying to insult your intelligence but unless something dies first it can't be revived and so if we're going to have revival personal revival personal evangelism something is going to have to happen resident in our life and it must begin with death and so death is the requirement it's the requisite for a revival it's death that's the requisite for a harvest consequently it is it is requisite for anything that God wants to do in our lives we first must die I'm coming to a close that happened fast didn't it our musicians can stay where you are tonight you're welcome and so to summarize in this most quiet of scenarios in this most unappealing subject we must have a harvest we can't not have a harvest we must experience revival not i'm not trying to i'm not trying to school anyone here tonight i'm talking about us individually when we experience a revival individually it cannot help but help us collectively. But we must have a harvest. And here's why. We don't like to talk about it, but death is the key. Death is the active ingredient. Death is the requisite requirement. And the only way to it is on the road to death. Jesus often used agricultural Methods and, and allegory to, to, to drive his point home. It's, it paints a picture for us to see. The seed illustration is the ultimate picture of what he was to accomplish on the cross. And here's some very rudimentary but very, very interesting facts about plants, planting, and harvest. I've already said it, but the seed in order for it to become fruit, it's got to die first. I'm not trying to insult your intelligence. I really am not. But in order for the plant to grow, the seed first must be planted and then it must die. And the process of that planting is just this. The seed is planted and in order for the life to grow from it, it must die. It, it breaks apart. The life of it becomes broken and what is freed from it sprouts into something new leaving behind the shell of what it once was and what it once contained plants often respond immediately this is very interesting to large amounts of rain do you know that you can water plants with a garden hose and it is effective but there's just something about the storm 
There's something about the rain as it falls down on these plants as they are attempting to grow. One may think that they might not be receiving enough water, but, but what is really happening is that the atmosphere during a storm is rich in nitrogen, an element that the plants long for. They need it, and it is the key to what they respond to as they continue to ascend from the ground. And so don't ever discount the storms in your life. Don't, don't ever look at the storm in, in, in disrespect or disbelief because there, there are elements to that that's going to bring something beautiful from your life. This is not my notes this, this evening, but I feel like saying it. Don't, don't, don't look uh, your storm in the face and, and, and just hate the storm. I know it doesn't feel good, but there is something that's going to come out of that that someone is going to be able to feast on and it may just save someone out of their storm. This gives more pertinent proof that life is full of necessary opposition. Unless, not if, not perhaps or maybe so, he said unless a kernel of wheat falls into the ground it abides alone unless it dies. Unless the breaking of the exterior occurs, it stays exactly what it is, not what it was ultimately intended to be. You see, people don't primarily eat seeds. They don't, well, they do. People do eat seeds, but they're not, they're not enamored over seeds. You ever eat a sunflower seed? They don't taste good. People don't live off of the seed. They live off of the fruit that the seed produces. It's the fruit that's attractive. It's the fruit that satisfies the hunger. And so death and dying are not popular subjects. But it is part and parcel to what we are to do and to be, to be Christ's life and live a Christian life. Because we are certainly and absolutely and simply not put here for ourselves. And hear me this evening, I'm not trying to be doom and gloom. And so let's pick this up a little bit. Let's turn it up just a little bit. Death is not the end. Death and dying is not the end all be all when you die you have the opportunity to be resurrected when you die out to your flesh and die out to sin and die out to the things that are trying to be counterintuitive to the word of God we have the ability to come into new life and that new life can spring forth from that death when we die we have the hope of resurrection because like Paul said it's when we die behold all things are become new when we die to ourselves, we can then be renewed with purpose. We can then be renewed with new passions. Then we can be renewed with new energy to bring about what God has called us to do. And that is to bring about a, 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 an abundant harvest. And so we must commit ourselves with everything we have, with every ounce of our being, to do and to be what God has called us to do and what God has called us to be. We need some men and some women who will be willing to run head first
first into the unknown and to put their own interests aside and to set their own preferences down and to reach for a dying world to sacrifice what we think is ours to sacrifice what even may be ours to save others to choose to go head first into dangerous situations I, I mean that head first into discomfort and sometimes even our own inconvenience but we must work tirelessly to plant and to sow and to cultivate a harvest for a great revival in this end time and it is it is not coming it's here they're ready they're already there they're looking for fruit they're looking for people who are bearing that fruit and if we will just die out to who we are and our sins and our circumstances God can bring about a harvest that we will not be able to contain and so we must serve others and not ourselves to serve our generation and boldly proclaim the gospel to every creature and so I'm coming to a close if you'll stand with me and see me I already used that term one time didn't I it was not a police officer he was not a special agent he wasn't even a first responder he wasn't a special forces operator Benjamin Keith Clark didn't even serve as a firefighter. On September the 11th, 2001, he was working as a chef, prepping meals for those at the Fiduciary Trust Company on the 96th floor of the offices in the South Tower. When the plane hit the building, he didn't try to escape. He didn't try to save himself, no he took steps to guide others to safety. Reportedly, this man ensured that everyone in the department that he worked, as well as in all the parts of the 96th floor offices together, evacuated the building immediately. Following the tragic event, a fiduciary official credited Mr. Keefe with saving hundreds of lives. For example, he saw him as he reached the 78th floor and reportedly assisted a woman in a wheelchair to exit the building. Despite his undeniable heroism, he didn't survive the tragic event. Now obviously there are those that I am certainly unaware of, and I'm not trying to minimize any other situation or circumstance from that day. But there are those who acted in similar fashion, and they didn't lose their lives in the process. What really matters is that Mr. Clark was willing to risk it. He didn't know what the outcome would be. He didn't know what might happen to him. But his focus was on others in the midst of tragedy. You may say or think that this is all very dramatic, perhaps even over the top for the subject here tonight. But the reality is, is that we really are engaged in a life and death circumstance and I, I don't want to, to wax political but if you if you just look at the landscape of our society the world is ripe the ingredients are there for a very catastrophic event within the next few months years maybe even moments if we really believe what the word says there are those who are going to leave this world and they will face judgment the tragedy is that they would leave this world not knowing or hearing 
the gospel. And so, Mr. Keefe was not a, he wasn't a first responder. He wasn't, he wasn't necessarily trained for that moment. He hadn't been training for that moment for, for years or months or maybe even days. It was a split second. And he went into active mode to save others around him because it was in his heart to do it. And so can I tell somebody here tonight, he wasn't a first responder, he wasn't a special office commander, and you don't have to be a theologian. You don't have to be a scholar. You don't have to know everything, all the ins and outs of everything that this word says. You just got to be willing to risk it. You just got to be willing to open your mouth and let God fill your mouth to speak a word to somebody because I'm telling you right now, they're hungry for it. I know what I'm talking about. I, I, I experienced it today. They are hungry for it. They need it. They want it. And if we will just die to ourselves to lay aside our own situations and circumstances, I'm not trying to minimize those, but focus everything on Him and His work, we can see a harvest. And so I ask us this evening, are you ready to risk it? Are you really just ready to risk it and tell them about it? Are you ready to just forget ourselves and focus on them and lay down our lives for the sake of the truth I wonder if there's anybody in this building here tonight who would be willing to lay all that down and run headlong into the unknown I don't know how this is going to work Lord but I'm willing I don't know how all this is going to come about God but I want to do it I want to be what you've called me to be I'm here to say let's be spirit filled and let's be spirit led and let's let what's inside of us die and break forth and, and bear fruit fruit for abundance of harvest and everlasting harvest and absolute uh, an absolute revival in this end time what do you say can we do it together why don't we lift our hands and let's ask the lord to help us lord we love you tonight God, we this message has been brought to you today by the media ministry of hatchbend apostolic church we pray that it's ministered to you in some way, and we'd like to take this opportunity to invite you to join us in service here at Hatchbend Apostolic. Our Sunday services begin at 10 a.m. and our Wednesday night service at 7.30 p.m. For any more information or to speak with our ministry staff, please feel free to call our church office at 386-935-2806, or you can visit the contact link here on our website. Again, thank you for listening, and we pray God's richest blessings on you and your family.